Hello! Welcome again to another Dishcast. We've been on a, a really kind of intense roll lately. And I'm really psyched that this week we have Amy Chua, uh, who's a famous, infamous, wonderful professor at Yale Law School, um, author of countless books, um, currently embroiled in a controversy, if I can call it that, at Yale, which I've tried to understand and which I, I keep failing to understand what on earth is happening. So, But I don't want to talk about that so much today as I want to talk about some bigger themes because Amy has uh, an astonishing ability to both grasp this and also articulate it in, in such, such a simple and clear and important ways. But Amy, I start always these podcasts by asking you to tell me a little bit about where you're from. Like, where were you born? How did you grow up? What were your influences when you were a kid? Um, what was it like being little Amy? Okay, well, uh, well first, thanks for having me, Andrew. Um, I am an immigrant's kid. I was born in Champaign, Illinois. Um, my parents both are Chinese, but they grew up in the Philippines, um, part of that country's, uh, this is a term that I coined, the market dominant minority. So the Chinese in the Philippines are only about 1% of the population, but incredibly economically dominant. So that's the community that my parents came from. Um, my father was the black sheep in his family and he and my mother eloped to the United States for graduate school in 1960, um, turning their back on everything. Um, and of course they eloped to MIT, <laughs> which is not where I would, I would elope to, but uh, he got his uh, PhD here. It's a really, really common Chinese immigrant story. Um, and he, yeah, he got his PhD at the University of Illinois. I was born in Champaign-Urbana. I spent the first seven years of my life, um, really the only Chinese kid in, I don't know, I don't know if it was the whole school, but certainly in my class um, in West Lafayette, Indiana. So I spent seven years in West Lafayette, Indiana. I the oldest of four girls. Um, and, and what I, was that like being the only Chinese girl in a, in a, in a high school in the middle of America? The oppression so must have been intense. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, this is such a weird thing to say, but it was great. It, you know, I, I, um, sure, you know, there were, oh, slanty eyes, little episodes of uh, being bullied, but you have to remember, this is, I was born in 1962, um, and th this was a time when China was incredibly poor. It was not a threat. There were very, very few people. Chinese people in this country. We were not a scary population. So I, there were some downsides to being the only Asian kid, you know, uh, again, funny accent got made fun of, funny haircuts, but it was kind of a positive stereotype. You know, I worked really hard. I was a really good student. Um, so I- Did I'm you have sure, an accent? How did you have an accent if you were my born? Parents, my parents were so strict. Um, as you know, I later wrote this, Tiger Mom memoir, yes. but my parents were the original Tiger parents. So when I was little, contrary to a lot of other Chinese immigrants who wanted their kids to fit in and assimilate, um, I guess my parents were overconfident or something, but they really wanted me to retain pride in my um, ethnic Chinese heritage, even though, you know, my dad had never even seen China because they, they grew up in the Philippines. But I was only allowed to speak Chinese at home. 
This is wow. Fukian. This it, it's a weird dialect, Hokkien Chinese. Um, I was thrown into nursery school, not speaking a single word of English. It's kind of a sink or swim approach. Learned it really fast. And for every English word that I uttered at home, I got one whack of the chopsticks on my open wow. palm. And wow. by the time I got yeah, by the time I got to kid four, you know, my fourth sister, they don't speak Chinese as well as I do. But I I speak this weird dialect very, very well. Um so yeah, I started off with an accent right around twelve or thirteen, getting bullied for the accent. I determined I just decided that I was gonna get rid of it. So I did. <laughs> I'm not sure how. Um but then in fourth grade we moved to Berkeley, California. So suddenly we go from being only Asian um, you know, in town to a place where there were tons of Asians uh, and so many different kinds of even Chinese Americans. I mean, obviously also Cambodian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Japanese Americans, but even the Chinese community was so varied. You know, there were Taiwanese Americans and the people who had come over in Chinatown, their ancestors a long time ago, and then people like me. So then I spent, um, I went to high school in Berkeley, California, and then I, I, I came out um, east for, for school, for college. Um I'm fascinated by this because there is a, you know, the experience of being a minority in America is talked about a lot. And here you were, you, you couldn't have been more of a minority um, in a way. And yet it seems that your trajectory was somewhat resilient in the face of any percept, you know, perceived hostility or oppression, let alone how many microaggressions you must have experienced. And you just seem to brush it off or to feel so self-confident enough not to be affected by any of that. Yeah. And how, yeah. And how did it compare between Indiana and Berkeley? Yeah, uh, this is, I think, one of the strengths of um, being raised in a kind of old fashioned immigrant style. And I know you, I think you know something about this. Um, a little. Yeah, I, I wrote a, a, I co-wrote with my husband a book called The Triple Package, where I, I talk about um, what um, causes certain cultural groups in America to just do really well by very conventional metrics. like highest educational attainment and, and, and income and, you know, these very conventional metrics of success. And I identify these three traits or qualities. And one is what I call a sense of exceptionalism. Provocatively, I called it a superiority complex. So I was raised as a kid saying, you know, when I, I remember telling my mom, this kid, Jeremy Hall was bullying me, saying Chinese, you know, slanty eyes, making fun of the way I still remember, Andrew, the way I said restaurant. I said restaurant. And he ran around, I was in fourth grade, ran around the yard saying, ah, ha, ha, restaurant, restaurant, you know. And I came back and told my mom about this, and you will not believe her reaction. She was mad at me. She was like, why are you paying any attention to this idiot? Like, if he doesn't know that we come from the you know, greatest civilization, 5,000 years of history, we, we invented everything. That, you know, why are you wasting time thinking about him? So, but that's this one, that's the first feature. I say that that goes a lot. If you just have a superiority complex, then you're just a smug, arrogant <laughs> person. But combine that with the second quality, which I uh, describe as insecurity. I think it's that combination of being being told that you have something that you're really proud of, like whether it's the family you come from or the culture or the heritage with this sense of being an outsider that creates almost like a chip on the shoulder feeling like I am not being respected. I am going to show everybody. So I am fascinated by this combination and I'm just guessing 
that you have this. The third feature is something I call impulse control, basically self-discipline. Um, but so, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, I it, it's such a contrast to what I see in my students now. Like I when people ask me, so where are you from or is your family Chinese or for me, it was like, yes. Now I'm going to crush this question. You know, exactly. ask me the interview. It's, it's going to be, I know I'm going to win. Right? I'm going to be interesting. I have all the stuff to say. Now I can't even ask my Asian students, where are you from? Because that would suggest that they, I'm, I'm assuming that they don't belong to this country or that it's a microaggression because I, I don't know, you know, so it's, it's very different. It's that, it's that really fascinating confidence of the minority. Now, I'm, I'm just extrapolating from my own experience. And I, I grew up in England, of course. So, But I was, um, as an Irish Catholic, uh, had a very particular identity within that context. And it was very much a minority identity. And it was very much a viewed historically as a threat. Um, yes. Because, of course, England was constructed from the 16th century onwards on its opposition to Catholicism. And, you know, Catholics couldn't be in public life until the very late 19th century in, in England. But for me, I, and I came not from the aristocratic English Catholics who were able to buy buy themselves out of trouble for yeah. hundreds of years. I was from the bog Irish, bog standard Irish Catholic who came yeah. over as working classes. But my family was absolutely like yours, completely contemptuous of people <laughs> who might criticize this. And it, it, it was, and in fact, to tell people I was a Catholic, which I did as soon as I got out of Catholic school and went to a, a, a secondary secular high school, I, I was very proud of it. I, yeah. I retained it. I, I learned it cold. Like I could tell you the distinctions between transubstantiation. Yeah. Uh, I could tell you the niceties of the Immaculate Conception at the age of 11. I, I, I was down with it. Yes. And, uh, and I welcomed conflict. I welcomed being challenged with this. And, and again, also, there was some, this is proud as, my, as I learned, we ran England before you guys did. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that mentality. Exactly. And this amazing Catholic civilization across Europe and across centuries. I mean, this is extraordinary. I picked Thomas More as my confirmation saint as a sort of yes. fuck you. Right. And the air <laughs> tradition. The... Yes. Yeah. And and also I was told, I mean, I remember watching Manful Seasons when I was a kid, like, you worked hard, you studied hard, you could do anything you really wanted to if you really tried, but discipline was essential and also humility was essential. Yes. But my mother would tell me, um, she's probably going to hear this, maybe she'll hear this, but um, the first thing she told me was, and the other thing in Britain is class, of course, where you, I was lower, I wasn't in the, the right strata. But there, you know, the key message was the queen goes to the toilet too. That was, <laughs> so I immediately had this picture of the queen on the the loo and nothing pierced the sort of culture of authority and superiority and and you know that wonderful old eleanor roosevelt statement that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent yes but at the same time it's a choice right because i'm sure like me you encountered all kinds of times that people they expressed contempt for you or they seem to look down on it or you are an outsider you know or in that sense and so i think it's that combination i hope i don't get in trouble for saying this but i don't think i published it but when i was when i first published the triple package i had a couple of students who um were white male gay students brilliant and they said you know professor chua what you didn't talk about gay white males are a triple package culture <laughs> they, they explained that there there's like this and they i i don't 
I didn't end up writing it up, but they sent me all these documents, like disproportionately successful, driven, very similar dynamics. And yes. um, and I was like, wait, so where does the superiority come from? Like, where does the insecurity, what is the, um, uh, so that's- That's it's a great a theme, <laughs> I'm warming to it. Yeah, so I mean, did you ever read The Velvet Rage, which is Alan Downs' analysis psychologically of, of gay men? No. Uh, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting book. I remember <laughs> I gave it to Addison Cooper and said, you've got to read this. And uh, he read it and I said, what do you think of it? And he said, um, and I, he said, white rage. Yeah, he said, I, I long, I've, I've tried to figure out a word that defines how I've reacted to my homosexuality and rage. I feel it every day. <laughs> I was like, Anderson, you seem like the least rageful person I've ever seen. And of course, the point yeah. of the book was that rage is actually redirected into a, 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 a really uh, level of achievement you want to set yourself. It's what you Amazing. call the best, the best little boy in the world complex, yes. which yes. was, I wasn't just a little Catholic boy. I was going. I was also a gay boy, and I was going to be the first gay Catholic Prime Minister of the United Kingdom if it killed me. And that, and that was my goal. But I'm sure that has something to do with, with homosexuality, with the gay white male experience, and that is why increasingly the gay white male experience is, has no place within the. 2S, LGBTQ, RS, 2U, VW, plus, plus, minus 2S community, or whatever we now have, because we don't fit the model of, of being marginalized, victimized, and, and, and sort of, and luxuriating that, or not just luxuriating that, but, but, but holding to that as your core identity, as opposed to your identity as a, a human being and a citizen, which you can defend against all comers. And I, I'm trying to, it frustrates me that so much of the public culture doesn't encourage gay kids to feel that way, you know, to feel you can do absolutely everything. And who cares if these people hate you? Who cares? And it's, but it's, it's, it's not just for the gay community. It's a mentality that it goes to ethnicity too. It's my point about Asians, um, uh, you know, just the idea that if, if, if somebody asks you, so where's your family from? that that should be something that is insulting, that that should somehow, because that makes, it feels to me like so fragile, like that question makes you feel bad. Right. <laughs> that the world is a hard place. It's minority fragility. Uh, and as it were, it's non-white fragility that that is being propagated. And it's really unnecessary, especially when you consider the abilities and talents. Now, one of the things that strikes me is that is that for African Americans, and let's, let's talk, and to some extent for Latino Americans, although I'm not sure about the latter particularly, this has got to be a harder task, right? It has got to be a harder task to 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 go through the culture and civilization you've been born into, America, and see its historic loathing and 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 yeah, I think the word oppression is absolutely valid in this particular context, both in the law and in the society and the culture, and sometimes absolutely brutally, and find your own sense of pride in being black pride in exactly pride in the contribution that african americans made to the united states which is enormous yes. and so you i would this. love i would love you know and you, you can see all the great figures in black american history and the writers and the thinkers and the models that are there for excellence and and genius you know, from the Harlem Renaissance back to, you know, to, to Du Bois, uh, all the way through, uh, uh, to Baldwin today, for example, probably the, the, one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read. Um, uh, wh where has the loss of nerve, 
where did this disappear? Um, it, because all the energy that I read is coming from understanding that the black Americans are always downtrodden, have, have no resources of self-resurrection or self-creation or agency at all. Yes. So this is, I mean, you have just put your finger on a kind of a, a, a big deal. When this book came out, we were um, accused of uh, cultural racism, not normal, just cultural racism. And to me, this controversy was so shocking because, uh, you know, what we found was that the, these qualities, first of all, can be instilled at the individual level. So anyone mm -hmm. can have them. So Sonia Sotomayor uh, is a great example of somebody who didn't come from, you know, maybe, you know, generally speaking, her cultural group in America may not have had this, but her grandmother instilled in her the sense of you can be present. Same thing. Just this, there was a, a, a kind of a maternal figure that made her feel that she was just the best in the world. Coupled that with this insecurity, uh, but so a couple things. First, we identified among the most successful groups in America at that time. It was 2013. Just a snapshot. So these groups change over time, which shows it's not genetic, right? I mean, it used to be Greek Americans, but now it's you know, different groups, but among the most successful groups were Nigerian Americans and Ghanaian Americans. And that just corroborates what you were saying. They came uh, with a very, many of these immigrants and were raised with a completely different mentality, which is you descend from kings. You know, that's our history. Are you descend from this king, a Ghanaian king, a, a you know, a, a, a Igbo prince? Um, and then you come and you hit the insecurity that just stems from the racism in this country or being an outsider and all that. So that was one interesting fact. But going to your question about resources, I was so frustrated that this book was viewed as controversial because interestingly, among, I don't know, the most favorable readers, I got invited to so many historically black um, colleges and universities. <laughs> they love this book. I gave talks. And they were now, just for, for listeners, the book you're talking to book, book is, it's is called the triple package, the triple um, package. Yeah, I think it's called how three cult, how three traits uh, explain the rise and fall of cultural groups in America. Right. And it basically just took a snapshot and who's doing really well in this country, you know, again, defined by very conventional metrics. I'm not talking about happiness or depth or, you know, um, but just like income, and educational attainment, professional attainment. And some of the groups are you would just. You you probably imagine you know guess um, Jewish Americans Mormon Americans believe it or not Cuban Americans um, and Asian Americans uh, Indian Americans but the these historically black um, colleges and universities said this is exactly what our mission is and it goes back to what you said we have so much to be proud of you know look what you tried to do to us we could not be defeated we are still here um, and and you know, we don't need to work on the insecurity. <laughs> so um, why why then does does Howard bring in university, bring in Nicole Hina Jones, whose whose insistence is that the, the black Americans have no real agency in history, that they're always the subject to white supremacy, um, that she focuses almost entirely upon the troubles and struggles of African Americans and not upon the extraordinary achievements and ability. I mean, that isn't that's a Howard isn't vital for sustaining black American self-esteem and yet they're bringing someone who who really doesn't doesn't seem to believe in those things or am I am I wrong about that no I I don't I I just saw that um and I'm a not an 
enough of an expert. I actually haven't read 16, 19, that whole series. Um, but you know, all of all of society is changing right now, I think. Um, and I, I don't know if there are changes in, in those communities too. I mean, arguably, maybe somebody says that there's great pride in, um, look, we're, you could find sources of pride and superiority in all kinds of things. Maybe, look, this is our reconceptualization of history or something, maybe. Um, but generally speaking, I kind of agree with you. Like I, I, I see my a lot of my students and they are so different from even my students five years ago. Yeah, let me t- let me let me let me ask you about this because it fascinates me because I, I I'm, I'm watching what's happening on these campuses and I'm meeting people come out of these campuses and they are different. Completely. Uh, than than they used to be. This is a very profound thing. They are being surely. This is a question of indoctrination that they're going through, and they're coming out remarkably uh, monolithic in their views and seemingly deeply hostile to the principles of liberal democracy, which is every individual is equal. What matters is your arguments, not your identity. Uh, we all have one vote. Uh, we treat people regardless of their race in America, or at least we attempt to, and that's what our legal process is all about and what our constitution is designed to do, which has in the past failed to do that, but it's been a constant attempt to make that better and better. And they're telling you that none of that matters, that we are as in a bad a state today for African-Americans who were in the uh, before the Civil War. The same white supremacy exists. It just manipulates you in different ways. Uh, and and not only that, but it's 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 that's across every other single identity too. Is that every other identity then has to adopt that model of being miserably oppressed forever by oh, these structural gosh. forces? So tell me what you think has happened to the students' minds and souls here. How are they different? Tell me tell me how they're different. How how you can tell that? Well, you described it very well. I'll I'll say you know one of my students was J.D. Vance, um, and that wasn't so very long ago. But let's just say even like eight years ago. One of the things that made it so fun for me to teach was I liked being provocative, you know, so I was very proud I would have so federal society that's our conservative uh, yeah. student group, but I would love, you know, in these small groups or classes, I would even today, this is still true of me, I have the most diverse classes in the purest sense, that is politically diverse, racially diverse, every kind of diverse. And I'm proud of that. But it used to be so fun that we, I would have debates and you'd have some member of the Federal Society, very conservative, maybe very religious, debating with somebody, maybe a lesbian woman who had opposite views. They would, you know, argue in class afterwards, go out for a beer. You know? Absolutely. It, it would be fun and I would see friendships develop and it was that was why I wanted to be an academic. Well, I, I grew up, you yeah. Amy, I, yeah. I grew up in the in the Oxford Union where all we did yes. was debate. I I always picked the, the 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 topic on the side that was almost certainly going to lose because I enjoyed the thrill of finding a difficult position to argue for and oh, arguing me for too. it. I would find like the most provocative person who could say something about, you know, terrorism and and know that the other side would come back and be feisty and totally different now. I don't sad to say even I I've changed a lot. But for example, now not only is it do you not see this, but if you're just a liberal and you can't even have a friend who is in the federal society, you know, uh, if you have just a friend, then you will be tar- you will be targeted as Fed sock adjacent. This is a new term, Fed sock adjacent, like white adjacent. It's a new term meaning that you it, it, it it's a complete change because not only can you not debate, you can't even be friendly to somebody no. like that. 
So it changes the landscape completely you know, because it makes friend groups smaller and smaller, only people of your, your, your views. Um, people are also much more, um, I, I think there's a race to the bottom. I, I, I've seen, um, so the way we admit students to Yale Law School is very interesting. We, um, I think some people get let in, you know, because they're just so amazing. But most of the people, three faculty members, and it's kind of random, read their, their application. So part of that is, you know, grades and test scores, but the essays, that is something I've noticed has changed completely. Um, it, they are so much more victim oriented now. I actually saw read one recently that was, I have suffered so much because my parents are incredibly wealthy. You know, I, I was I was forced to grow up with white privilege, no escape. You know, like just from the moment I was young, I was just so much money, <laughs> um, and this has been so damaging. And um, but this is this is kind of. <laughs> and but the thing is, they're coming. Are they coming to Yale with these views, or are they uh, are they developing already. them at Yale? Or oh, oh, it's already uh, no. there. It's in high school. This is all. If you look at kind of what's happening in a lot of the fancy private schools in New York City and elsewhere, you see a lot of these complaints. Um, you, uh, you know. But is it NEA. is it the, the NEA this week is launching a, 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 a item thirty nine? They approved a intensification of critical race theory training for all teachers, uh, cultural sensitivity training. They're full on since last summer too. These organizations that were already in favor of this are now aggressively promoting. The AFT uh, has. Ibram X. Kendi giving a, a major speech to them. This is the in, the entire educational establishment, and not just law schools at universities, yeah, but, but you know, Andrew, high schools, elementary schools. I, yeah, but I have a complicated view about this because okay. I, I feel like everything gets hijacked, right? So one thing I, I teach this class that may sound incredibly boring to you, it's, it's called contracts. <laughs> um, and but what I love doing, and I still am the only professor that does this, is I have really a lot of conservative students, but I have students who are so left, like defund the police off the end. But I, I like it. So I teach contracts and I always um, I assign contract theory from different normative moral perspectives. So right. I assign reading from a years. If you are um, how you analyze contracts, if you're a libertarian. You contract as promise. You believe that it's incredibly important for moral autonomy that you be able to be held to your promise. So we do readings and we debate and people can disagree. Then I do some readings based on law and economics, which is okay, it's all about efficiency. You know, it's not about morality, but it's just whatever's most efficient for, for this is how we should kind of def, you know, how we decide whether this is a good contract's decision or not. Then for 20 years, Andrew, I would do, now we're going to do critical theory. And I would assign some of uh, my favorite piece by Pat Williams, critical race theory piece. And now critical race theory means something that is crazy. Like when I, when I read what it means, I'm like, oh my God. But I think what we do in this tribal world is we always want to assign the worst. If, if it's right. a viewpoint you don't like, assign the worst garbagey thing you could find and there is garbagey work in every discipline right so so i don't like a lot of the critical legal study stuff critical race theory stuff but there are a few pieces so i assigned this piece and i don't even tell them that it's like they didn't even know it's critical race theory it was just a particularly interesting piece about 
you know, I, I explained what I think their, their contribution is. And I was like, their contribution of the critical schools is they focus on power dynamics. And this could be Appalachian lack of power. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, and we have these great discussions where I have my FEDSOC people saying, I really like this piece because they didn't know that it was critical race theory at that time. You know, uh, I think all this is probably, I don't even know if I can do this in September anymore. I mean, it's because things get hijacked, even like the term cancel culture, right? Like, it's like I used to, I think I'm, but let's, have let's been subjected. Let's, yeah. Yeah. But let's, let's, let's drill down on this a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, uh, and I agree with you. I absolutely believe that critical theory is worth reading and, and thinking about. And as part of a liberal education, it's, it's a viewpoint that really deserves to be thought about. I, I studied it in political theory. I was, and you can theorist. reject it. Yeah. Like I, yeah. And absolutely. You can see where it's coming from, but you also see when you study it, that in fact its premises uh, require a rejection of the Enlightenment in ways that is really profound. And, and if you haven't really grappled with the intellectual origins of this, the rejection of the individual as a unit, uh, as having autonomy and agency, the, the, the primacy of free speech so that we can get to something called the truth, the notion that even if we cannot nail down particularly objective truth, there is something out there that called reality to which we always refer. These, these core concepts that you are you before you are anything else, before you are Catholic, Asian, whatever, you are you, an American citizen first, and that's the key unit. By removing that from the whole structure, you are actually removing this tiny piece from the bottom of the pile that will yeah. cause the whole thing to collapse because you, you're creating people incapable of understanding themselves that way. Right. And therefore, they cannot interact in a liberal process. So, so, for example, having a conversation, a debate, requires you to put aside for one moment all your particular identities or, or biases and to say, we're going to have an argument as two reasonable people who are enlightenment citizens as it were and we trust yes. reason to come up with some sort of compromise or answer now if you tell people they that's an illusion that the illusion is created by white supremacists to oppress people of a different race that's entirely a function of that and this is this is really what they're talking about then how on earth can you enter a liberal democracy as an equal citizen and yes. that is what's not happening they can't and therefore there is no debate and there is no liberal, and eventually this becomes something unrecognizable to I, American I, experience. I, I, even what you just described, we used to do this all the time, which is I'm going to assign you this side and you this side. And, you know, it used to be fun. Oh, let's mix it up. Let's make a liberal to do the, 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 the conservative position. And it would be fun. And, you know, afterwards they'd often feel proud of themselves. Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure we could do that anymore because if, if you take somebody – who's you know very progressive and say i want you to argue this position i might be afraid that's violence you know to, to make me have to act that role is so so i think you're right i i you're much but that comes down to yeah. this thing and i think it's worth is, is standpoint positionality let's talk about this because this is a concept concept that comes out of 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 this critique of liberalism which is that you you cannot even open your mouth you cannot even exist you can't even be silence silent without reinforcing a power differential and that yeah. everything is about these power differentials so therefore oh, there yeah. can't be a free and equal debate it depends on 
are you the right race? Are you right, the, the right gender? Are you the right sexual orientation? Have we figured out the racial hierarchy and gender and, 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 and uh, identity hierarchy enough? So this is, and I found in talking to recent graduates, you know, some of this stuff, you, you can ask questions about this a little bit. And then after about a couple of difficult questions, they yes. seem to become very uncomfortable. They get emotional about it. And then they project onto you that you're evil and you must be on the side of the oppressors. And then they ask to leave or they leave. In other words, we've, we've detrained. We have gotten into these kids' minds and told them how not to be liberals, how not to be functioning in a liberal democratic society. I, I think, yeah, I, I think I, we agree <laughs> about this terrible turn in things. I mean, I, that's, um, uh, it's very anti-intellectual. It's stifling of debate. It's, it's, I think it leaves everybody less happy. Um, uh, you know, for me, you're actually kind of a scholar of this. I, I'm terrible at philosophy, and I know that you've written and thought a lot about this. You know, for me, I wonder, um, does, it, does it have, I think you're right if you think about critical theory, what the origins are. I, I, I think I sometimes ask students, is there something we can learn from this perspective without necessarily taking it all the way to its extreme? So one move that I hate now is this kind of like rationality or analysis, logical analysis is a white supremacist thing. That's just going to be the end of everything. You know, that, that, that's, that yeah. And I, I'm seeing things like that now, but I don't know if that's a necessary uh, part of the theory. You know, and again, I'm not an expert in this. I teach yeah, I it. I think it is. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. a, it's the only logical consequence of these premises. That's, that's really why I've been bashing my head against the wall. Because, yes, of course, they're not teaching Derek Bell to four-year-olds. Obviously, they're not. And, and no one sane is saying that. But what they are saying is that the very principles, the, the neo-Marxist principles that undergird all this are designed mm -hmm. to destroy liberal democracy because they believe liberal democracy is a mask for oppression of non-whites, which is, means that the entire constitution right. of the United States is a fraud. Oh, I know. I have I've written about this in political tribes and don't even get me started, you know, uh, where the constant, this is another huge change. I, I gave a talk to a really fancy private um, school in New York City where the headmaster came, who was white, said to me in distress, I, Amy, I can't open my mouth. I mean, now a majority of my students think of America's founding fathers as white male rapists. You know, so if since they, such people wrote this document, then why should we pay any attention to it? And it's such a terrible move and such a terrible confusion. Um, and but I, the I, other yeah. amazing thing though, Amy, is that this idea that the constitution is a fraud deliberately, deliberately a fraud, uh, is now held by every single major cultural institution in the country. I mean, including Yale, including the New York Times were prepared to devote an entire magazine to the argument that America was founded not for I freedom, know. but in order to perpetuate slavery. It I is know. a white supremacist evil construct from the get-go, and it has not changed an inch. And that is the key proposition. And every single major cultural institution of this country now supports that position. I mean, it's that's, so that's kind of staggering. 
Yeah, because I, you know, what what I usually write about is I, I'm not a philosopher, but I write about foreign policy and ethnic conflicts. So it's so tragic for me as somebody that studied, you know, countries like Afghanistan or Iraq or Indonesia or Burma that are countries that have all this ethnic diversity, but no glue, no common thing to hold the country together. And the results are tragic. You know, Libya, I know a lot about these countries. And to see uh, us just wasting this, it, it's a gift. You know, I mean, I, you and I agree, this country has repeatedly failed to live up to those principles. But it's a very different thing to say that we have shamefully and repeatedly failed to live up to these you know, really impressive and important principles, and to say that those principles are all frauds and smoke screens to begin with. And if we don't have the Constitution to hold us together, I really don't know what there is left to, to, to hold this country together. Well, that is partly the point that the individual citizen, regardless of race or identity, is the glue. And that individual citizen is, is presented within the Constitution as, a, a, as an individual granted certain rights. And from that comes the entire system. Remove that. Yeah. And, and and you can quote Robin DiAngelo, who yeah. says that individualism is the foundation of white supremacy. Oh. <laughs> the foundation of white supremacy is the individual. And with no understanding that how this emerged in Europe, without a, any understanding of world history or European history or the history of liberalism. It, it, it's, it's an extraordinary, and the reason it works, in my view, the reason it's so effective is it's so core, because we want, as tribal creatures as we are, yeah. we want to be able to sort the world into clear, identifiable good versus bad. And and skin color is a absolutely clear and 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 obviously with a long history of of, of tribal identifying, identifying, which enables you to say all Tutsis, because they look different than us, yes. are evil. All Hutus are completely uh, uh, evil. And 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 so. But when you turn that around and you create racism from the view of the underdog so that it seems to have this, this moral quality to it, and because then you have to redefine racism not to mean hostility right. towards people because of another tribe, but for some other purpose, right. then essentially what you're doing is offering people an ability to be racist and to take the higher ground at the same time. Yes, and it's, uh, you know, it's also lazy and sloppy thinking, you know, because um, again, I, I, I really enjoyed these debates where I have conservatives saying exactly what you're saying about some of this critical uh, theory or race theory and creating an environment where then very smart people can argue back. And I think what you're saying is true. What I'm seeing now is even just trying to have that debate is is not acceptable. It's not acceptable for, for the yeah. reasons I've stated. Because exactly. you're not you're not qualified to be yeah. in this debate, yeah. and also the the notion that speech itself, speech is is inextricable from these power dynamics. Yes. <laughs> so there is no safe space from this at all. There is nowhere outside of these power dynamics. You know, um, I will tell you as an uh, uh, something optimistic. I, I'm in the middle of all this giant. You're catching me at a bad time in the middle of this giant campaign against me. So maybe uh, this is not a good time for me to be saying this. But I am more hopeful because I think that there is a large, silent majority. So to explain what I'm saying, uh, in my syllabus, I put this banner on my syllabus that you would think no one would have to say, Andrew, <laughs> which is it's a banner that says this class seeks to provoke um uh, uh, you know, foster lively debate among multiple political viewpoints, and everybody uh, is entitled to 
kind of a right of a positive presumption. And I mean, just the most basic thing. And I had a uh, colleague say to me, oh my gosh, if you put that on your syllabus, nobody will take that class. You know, uh, because I said, and uh, 150 people signed up for this class. It was the largest wait list of any other class, you know, and um, it's true that people don't, admit it to other people, you know, um, but it's it's strange. I think that a lot of what you were describing is actually driven by a relatively small number of very, very loud voices. Um, and it's for just the reason you're saying, I don't think it's satisfied. I think um, I, I, I was, um, a, another student told me that on Zoom, there was a class where um, of a hundred people, this is not my class, but then one student, it was, the class was criminal law actually criminal law. And early on, um, a student raised her hand and said, I think that criminal law is racist. I mean, it's white supremacist and we need to get rid of it. And and the saddest thing was I was talking to the student and he said, it was so ridiculous. And I said, so was there a debate? Did people talk? You know, he said, no, not one. That conversation just got shut down. <laughs> Um, not one single person, I mean, this is America's best and brightest. It's so hard to get to Yale Law School. Not one person said anything in a hundred person class. Um, and I said, why? You know, this person was so outspoken. And the person, the student said, oh, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. It's on Zoom anyway. Like what, why? Um, so I think you're right about a lot of things. It's, it's a shutdown. It's a complete transformation of the academic experience. It's not recognizable enough. It's just not worth it. Uh, but it's by such a relatively small number of people. That's what's but shocking. That's, the truth is that that has always been the case with revolutionary movements. <laughs> They're never that popular. They're always seized by a small minority that make the, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, to use a Stalinist yeah. term here. Yeah. It, is, it, is, it is always a, a vanguard that enforces this and intimidates Mm -hmm. and bullies people out of dissent. And if you do want to advance in the American elite at this point, you have to, at this point, uh, make a public confession of your support of this radically uh, anti-Western, anti-individualistic, anti-American point of view. And I, I think you're right. I have been struggling to survive. Uh, I'm, again, to toot my own horn, I'm one of the most popular professors. I have the longest wait list. I have you know, top reviews. And for just the reason you're saying, I am struggling to survive. Well, um, the same with us in as those of us who were in mainstream media. I was. It's not like at New York Magazine, I was not getting readership. I wasn't bringing people oh to that gosh. site. And in many cases, I was, I was among the leading traffic gainers on that site. But they had to get rid of me because I was, I was lending the impression that these questions could be debated within the context of a magazine. Exactly. And, and that was what had to, yeah. had, to, had to go away because the very notion that these things have any legitimacy at all needed. And, but then the good news is you leave like other people have and you, we have this subject thing and suddenly, yeah. oh, oh, 100,000 people want exactly. to get this every week? 100,000 people? And, and, and you realize that in fact, and I, I, I say this a lot, the, the difference between the private conversation in our lives and the public conversation yes. in our lives has really been as, as, as different. And it's both, it's true both, for example, on the right among the, the middle classes, which is that no one prepared to stand up really and say Trump was an egregious, anti-democratic, 
hideous, vile president that, that would destroy this country's constitution if he got a chance. Uh, uh, no one says that. But they do on the, in public, but in private, they're like, Jesus Christ, how do we get rid of this guy? <laughs> and, and then in the other stuff, all the liberals going around knowing they can't say a single word that could conceivably conflict with the, and again, they're always ratcheting the movement up to left and left and left and left. So, so you can't, and also they change the rules all the time. Yes. So you can't even conform successfully, which is exactly the so that the minute you've decided, oh, now it's trans. Can I say transgender now, and not transsexual or transgender or transgendered? And every time they're one step ahead, and yes, so they so can find a way to yeah, they can find a yeah. way to destroy you. It is and it's yeah, it's so similar to the Cultural Revolution, you know, because I study a lot about Chinese history, and even the terminology is denounce. I. You know, I wrote an op-ed um, uh, supporting, saying that then-judge Brett Kavanaugh uh, was an excellent mentor to women. Um, that was before all the allegations came out. But afterwards, and this is partly why I'm in trouble now three years later, they, all the other Yale professors also had supported him originally, but every single other person retracted, you know, recanted. And it was like, you must denounce him. And it's the the vocabulary is denounce him you know denounce, you have to you, yes yeah yeah you have to do this and i i i have a right not to i chose not to retract my support and i've been paying for it ever since um you know and it's a, it's so it, i I'm particularly I, worrying I about the law this. and the legal questions because of course and this is also part of the attempt by critical race theory to undermine our constitution and our constitutional practices is that is that for example the principle that you can defend a lawyer who has defended some indefensible people, but defended them very well. You can defend someone, uh, someone intellectually, uh, and and that that's possible within a within a, a liberal sphere. Um, but the minute you go into a liberal sphere, if you if you represented someone who did something that was not politically correct, someone who might have violated some of these rules, then no longer does the lawyer-client privilege apply. The lawyer himself or herself is going to be smeared as indistinguishable from the person that they are representing, which violates again a yeah. very core critical liberal idea, which yeah. is that no, we're defending someone. It doesn't matter. We are giving them due process. We are yeah. giving them the right to defend themselves, and there is something honourable. In defending exactly. indefensible people, because and we, that's what we, the right what, means. That's what yeah. the right means. That it doesn't vary depending on whether you like the person or not. I mean, that's what gives it its robustness. Yes, um, yes, and, it, and it's the it, whole yeah. point is that you exercise it for the people you most despise. Exactly. Like the old ACLU would. The whole point is to defend freedom of speech when it meant the Nazis exactly. marching in Skokie, Illinois. Now that's. That's when it's tested, and it is, exactly, and it is not. And again, we have places like Harvard and Yale and these law schools saying you can't represent. Like I don't know who there were. There were. I'm trying to remember the particular case at Harvard, um, but there was. I think it was Weinstein. Somebody yeah, represented yes, yes, Harvey yes, Weinstein. Yes, that's right. Uh, and this also is an indication to me that the the education in illiberalism is 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 getting deeper and deeper. Yes, uh, it's true. And I do remember that because, and you get no leeway that it was an African-American professor with all the liberal credentials and uh, they couldn't do it. And I, I do think that the law school came out and, and supported him, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, that's why I started off by saying that my experience today is just, it's not recognizable. I don't feel like I'm in the same at, occupation. 
if you wade through the uh, sewer of Twitter, you'll find, as I find, yeah. that uh, about 95% of the responses to anything I might tweet. And look, I take Twitter to be a sandbox. And so I'm not I'm not presenting my most measured thoughts or I'm, yep. just, I'm throwing out observate, quick quips and observations and generally blah, blah, blah. But every time, almost every time, the response is, you're a racist, you're white, you can't say this, you're a bigot, uh, you're a eugenicist of all things, uh, you're a white supremacist. It, it, it almost entirely to the identity of me. It isn't about the cogency of the argument. Yep. And, and, and it's not just they're diverting from the argument. They think that's the argument. They really yeah. believe it matters. Because, of course, you have to if you buy this ideology. And again, this is what frustrates me. People, good liberals are sitting around saying critical race theory is just this, this elaborate legal theory that was constructed in the 70s, and all of which is true. Of course it's true. But the principles of it, uh, they spread throughout a system. And since they are designed to destroy liberalism, the values that they sprinkle across and they germinate across it throughout a means that the defense of the liberal order becomes less and less likely. Fewer and fewer people are able to do it until the actual, the actual muscles that are required intellectually and politically to exercise in a liberal democracy are so atrophied that, that, that we become simply tribal warfare. In other words, and what really worries me is that because all that matters is not your argument, but your identity, that you construct coalitions that are entirely yeah. about your identity. And, the, and, and, and that requires also uh, a description of these minorities as utterly monolithic in their views, yeah. which there are no varieties of, <laughs> of individuals with no diversity of opinion right. within everybody who's Latinx or whatever else they've come up with. Who's, they, we can't. We can't talk about Chinese and Vietnamese. We can't talk about Hmong, right. and we can't talk about um, the difference between Venezuelans and Cubans and Colombians and Mexicans and all the other complexities, because all of that is irrelevant to this particular, right. this particular I mean, and, theory. And, but what's amazing about this is people are, this makes people miserable. Yeah. I mean, this is another thing. Like I look, I have never seen so much misery among the student body. And, you know, there are a lot of, you ask me, what do I think is going on there? You know, I'm, I'm studying right now, generation Z. I'm very interested in, um, yeah, I am and I, yes. And I'm trying to not just be that old person that is, oh my gosh, they're just so, I'm trying to actually um, really understand it. And from their perspective, and there's some interesting points. I, if you, if you look at, um, uh, you know, their sense of just not being able to, to rise and, like college debt is kind of, I tried to do a deep dive into this and there were some points, but people are, my students are so much more stressed. They are, they, it's like they're each imprisoned. You know, it used to be, you could just say things, people are terrified of saying things in class. They're terrified of supporting somebody that might take them, you know, so you have to, you have to pick and choose. And it's, I think it's, in, there's, you know, from now, it used to be, you come to Yale Law School 10 years ago, you, we, there's a big welcome about, welcome to this intellectual cornucopia. We hope you learn. Now, the first three sessions when you arrive are all mental health. You're just all, it's like, these are all the available mental health facilities we have and this, and then diversity and inclusion training and then sensitivity training. It's, it's like a different institution. Right. Um, yeah, you know, the part where you do intellectual debate is like, comes comes at the bottom. 
One of the things that always, I mean, I'm an old fart at this point, but one of the things that I always remember when I, I, I got a scholarship to go to Oxford, I was the first person in my family to go to college and I got to Oxford as a top scholarship and I was, you know, gay white boy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when I got there, I was, I must've been like, well, I was only just turned 18, just like, uh, and suddenly they called me Mr. Sullivan. I'd never been called Mr. before in my life. I was given, let's, let's face it, zero absolutely zero advice on how to yeah. behave and live in at Oxford University. Um, I had to show up once a week to a one-on-one -on -one with one of these Oxford professors and read out loud an essay that they had set the previous week and having mastered the reading in between and could be, could be absolutely, you know, shred to ribbons yeah. by this, by this, this old Don. Oh, oh, you go out and you'd be absolutely downcast and you'd be miserable and they would have yeah. totally ripped you to shreds. But then you went back the next week. And, and, and I, I, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't traumatized. I yeah. was, I was emboldened. I was, I knew I had to take responsibility for myself now and there was no one else going to do it for me. Absolutely. I was going to be treated as an adult, not as a child. Yes. And, and, and I could, and I was treated as a functioning adult. And these people are treated as, as non-functioning children. Yeah. And of course, when the incentives then, uh, when you're treated as a non-functioning child, what do you do to get attention? You whine. Exactly. You cry. You have a tantrum. You run away. You have a tantrum. You require, you demand these things because otherwise you're going to be crushed. If someone says something to you, you've experienced violence. I mean, I mean, it's just, how can you, again, you're right. Living your life that way will make oh. you unbelievably miserable. Yeah. And I always find this about being a minority too. Of course, you and I are not regarded as minorities by these people, but we are minorities in, in different ways. I've learned there are two ways approaches to being a minority. And that's I could walk around every day observing every tiny slight. Someone assumed I was straight. What a fucking disaster that would be. Who cares? I know. Uh, uh, you know, someone said something mean about Catholicism. Somebody said something bad about this. Uh, and you would end up feeling hating yourself. No wonder they hate themselves. Yeah, you know, when you first asked me before the show, you know, how do I pronounce your last name? And I, I, it means so much to people now. If you, if their name is pronounced wrong, that's I'm just a trying to be polite. That's all. I'm just trying I, to get oh, right. You were being nice, but I, like, I was like you. All these little things happen, um, and you, you know, I actually, back to the silent majority. I have a very, very progressive left wing, Hispanic American. Mexican-American student whose dad is an undocumented worker said the same thing to me about uh, cultural appropriation and the sombrero. He, you know, he said just privately in a private conversation, he said, who cares? You know, now that's if, you, if you're a white person wearing a sombrero, shaking a maraca at a, a Mexican restaurant, that's a form of cultural appropriation, racism. He's like, you know, they, they like it. They like the sombrero. What's wrong so let with me that? ask you this. You, you're you're Asian-American. Asian-Americans have the last couple of years, they had a very interesting time in a way. They're, they're a very interesting group, I think. Um, and in many ways, it strikes me that they are being targeted all over the place. It's one of these examples where a natural group is being named and targeted. And, and it certainly seems that there was a certain amount of street violence and hostility uh, during the during the early part of COVID, although it turns out it's not that common. I mean, you, you, for example, New York New York City has about twenty incidents in 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 twenty uh, twenty one so far. I think that's the last time I checked. Um, but also mainly from a lot of mentally ill homeless people 
who are also screaming these slurs, mainly, so far as I can tell, non-white people uh, 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 smearing Asians in the crudest fashion. Um, and at the same time, you have our institutions abolishing and systematically getting rid of uh, standardized testing in which has been the main vehicle for poor Asian American kids to really succeed in our country, which has been an extraordinary success story. Uh, yes. And, and, and there is a concerted campaign to, to rid our colleges and universities of too many of these kids because they're doing too well and are working too hard and are being too successful as if this is a, these are any criteria that should be used in, in, in assessing anyone. Now, I wait, I'm waiting, I'm sitting here, I'm seeing these schools target the Asian kids, I'm seeing, I'm seeing all sorts, and, and I'm waiting to see if Asian Americans will shift politically, and I see very little sign of that. It, it, this is the case where the a Asian Americans seem to have the values that would resist something like CRT, that would actually be an incredibly important part of contributing to restoring liberty and liberal democracy in America. And yet I, they're still supporting a party that has essentially capitulated to these well, people. Well, we'll see. You know, I so it, this brings us full circle because you asked me how it was being, you know, this Asian kid back in the 60s when there were no Asians here. And I said, you know, it was actually kind of great. And part <laughs> of the reason for that is because it's this is the hardest time for me to be an Asian American, you know, because it, Asians are perceived as a threat. And what's interesting for me to notice on campus is that it comes equally from the left and the right. Yeah. Because from the right, you've got this Wuhan virus, all this kind of anti-China stuff going on there. But the, from the left, there's, you know, there's Hong Kong and democracy and, and, and human rights violations. And, and so it's, and, and I know, but to your point, Asian Americans, I think it's very generational. I'm obsessed with generational differences, and I know a lot about this. So again, um, if you just take a smaller group of Chinese Americans, I can spot them in a second from my class what their political views are going to be. You know, um, there are some that are immigrants themselves, you know, and they are still very kind of attached to China. They don't even, they're, they're out of it. If they are first-generation Americans, that is their parents are immigrants, they will be very strivy, and, and uh, but they'll probably be more liberal than their parents, but they will still, you know, I'll, I'll be able to, they'll have some complicated views, but depending on how many generations Asian Americans have lived in this country, you can see where their political views are going to be. That is, you can see the ones that are all about critical race theory. They're going to, you know, they're, it's, so it's very tied, I think, to the immigrant experience, even among African-Americans, by the way, and all this is what you're talking about, private um, conversations. I've talked to Haitian-American students, Jamaican-American students, and there's kind of what you have to say just to survive in, in the academic landscape. And then there are views that you could have during office hours where you, uh, you know, so for example, in my class now, you absolutely cannot say that you believe in the American dream. If you say that, you're dead. You're, you'll be canceled. Uh, even if it, it's, it's a student of mine actually said that, that, well, you know, no, obviously not everybody. There was enormous unfairness. She said, you know, she, she having gone, done the military, still saw that there was some of the American dream alive for many groups, even who started off very poor. For that, she was pilloried and canceled. Yeah. But privately, students do believe this. 
but so so you know so um anyway back the the, the asian american thing is related to another concept that I, I i mentioned this market dominant minority thing it's part of a pattern i've seen um in lots of other countries uh where a a a, a small minority is suddenly viewed as having too much power and what you do is you get like a majoritarian backlash against that party because uh, for the reasons you say and uh and it's a very tricky time like i'm i'm always asked to go on tv to talk about this whole thing the harvard lawsuits and i can't even touch it it's just it's so complicated yeah but why but you haven't answered my question why uh, yeah. why would asian americans not want to actually really oppose this movement oh uh, there are publicly. lots of trump supporters there are uh, there are many many asian americans uh but I think but I was in terms of the general voting immigrants. block, they're still very heavily Democratic. And I, I like even in California, they're very heavily Democratic, even as California itself uh, were tried. I mean, they failed, actually, which is a good thing. <laughs> they failed to to uh, reinstate uh, race discrimination. In, in You know, my mom, my parents are luckily both still alive. They're 84. And they say, you know, they they no one likes wearing masks. Um but they're like, well, at least if we wear these masks, people don't know we're Asian. So, and it does change people's political views. Like, I think we'll see if, if it continues like this. I think you might see a change. Um, you know, a lot of people were interested in what happened in Florida with the Latin American population right. down there. That so many more people uh, voted for Trump than they expected. And I had called that because of stuff that I write about. Um, and that was heavily, actually, there was a male, male Hispanic uh, component that really like the self-reliance trope. Um, I I think the jury's still out. Um, and, you know, Asian Americans, and look at it by generation. That is, are they the immigrants, immigrants' kids, or the ones who've been in this country for four or five generations? I think you're going to see some movement if it continues this way. And because it's not going to be, a, it's, yeah. it's not going to be a movement left. I mean, that's what I, that's what I'm concerned no, about. I, no, I, I think it ultimately, what do people care about? Their kids, right. <laughs> you know, and it's, if it starts to be, wait a minute, we, um, you know, so there are a lot of things going on because a lot of my Asian American, uh, even older people are so angry at Donald Trump for, for right. creating this kind of, you know. If you so, could so, detoxify, yeah. if you could detoxify that, yes. take Trump out of it, if Republicans right. could appeal to the American dream again and and own that Absolutely. in a way that Democrats have kind of given away and said, yes. no, we represent the non-white minorities who really want to become American and to create this country the way that previous immigration immigrant populations and generations have always done. And we don't want them to be curtailed by leftist uh, boundaries and barriers to entry and I think they're we, going to get a lot of traction, even with the SATs. And it's yeah. not, you know, just the abolish, the increasing abolishing of the SATs. I think that's going to hit a real nerve. I hope so. I mean, because that yeah. is a direct attack on Asian American students, because the, 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 the more objectivity you can have in understanding how well people will do, uh, the less able you are to <laughs> pretend it's all yeah. OK. And, yeah. and, and so they want to get rid of that information. So they can just racially engineer entirely on the grounds of critical theory. In other words, they just they're going to have doc, uh, quotas throughout every, depending upon your race and gender. And who cares about actual standards or objectivity or any other way of testing results? 
Right. And uh, I believe in a multiplicity of factors. So in New York City, there are already so many schools that are looking at diversity statements and all these things. I am so with you. Like, why not a few schools like Stuyvesant or whatever that, you know, where 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 this should be a matter of pride yeah. for America, yeah, pride for America that an immigrant group is doing so bloody well. And and, and, and remember that immigrant, yeah, that immigrant. They, but they, the left is the left is absolutely apoplectic. Whenever you say that, they hate this model minority. They call it a myth. They want to deny it. They want to say that Asian Americans are actually failing because they're subject to white supremacy, like oh everybody else. If they actually succeed, they're actually just being white supremacists because they're now white supremacy adjacent. This hideous <laughs> phrase of adjacent. Um, I, I I mean, I'm genuinely as an American immigrant myself. Uh, the idea that America would turn around and treat a successful, thriving immigrant group and yeah. demonize them and throw up barriers against them and try to bring their standards down is anathema. It is, it is so poisonous and wrong, and yet it is embraced by the major Ivy League schools. It's embraced now by the federal government. It's embraced by Joe Biden. Uh, and, and it's... it's uh, I, I'm just, I'm just hoping and, and praying that people will realize that their kids' future is at stake. Now, let me move to another little question, which is, which you're, when I look and I try and explain and understand the the success of Asian Americans, there's one thing that just completely stands out in every single survey, and that is being born in a two-parent home and being brought up by those two parents until you're able to go to college. That's it. If you just plug that factor into any group in society, you will find that people who do that can succeed really well. And when I see the discrepancy between uh, between African Americans, uh, Euro Americans, whoever you want to call them, um, Asian Americans, the family structure is so powerful um, a factor. Uh, tell me about that. Why do you? My view is that we should, instead of demonizing this minority, we should say, well, what are they doing right? And how do we yeah. manage to replicate that elsewhere? How do we get white, to, poor white people to realize that sticking together and bringing up a child together, however hard that is, is going to pay off for you and it's going to pay off for the kid. So try hard to do that. Well, um, that's what goes back to this, uh, what I got tarred with cultural racism. It was so crazy because I, I don't know so much about the family the structure and the odds because I know for a while there were a lot of... Um, Asians who would actually from China come over and leave one parent behind I mean, they were still a, a cohesive family. So I'm not sure about the specifics there, but to your larger point, that's what I was so surprised at when we wrote this book, The Triple Package. Um, I remember these poor, this poor Hispanic school teacher in California wrote me and said, I don't know why your book is being viewed as so controversial. He said, you know, I used to always wonder, I used to, why are these Asian kids doing so well? And the fact that you're just like, revealing it it's a relief you know it, it's not something in the rice it's not genetic this is these are the cultural practices this is what uh how it's like pulling back the veil you know and we want to learn from this this is and it's also great because your point is that in because these groups we show changed over time i was saying that it shows it's not genetic because you have like nigerian americans and you know, all these different racial groups that change well, over time. But the distinction there, Amy, and we should, you know, acknowledge this, is that the, 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 the dynamic and the, the, the paradigm of an immigrant 
especially from countries like Nigeria, are going to be dramatically different than an average person from that country. So you're going to have hyper-educated elite self-selecting to skew the numbers in a certain way. All it tells you, I think, is that a Nigerian-American, for example, is not so hobbled by people's hostility to the color of their skin as such that they can succeed extremely well. And also, they also have family structure. I mean, we can leave everything else aside and talk about family structure. And when I bring that up occasionally, I'm told, first of all, that I'm a white supremacist because anybody who thinks that black family isn't the model of of, of where we need to be, then there's a counter-revision. And we say, no, 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 black fathers are very involved. They just don't live with them. They come and they're involved. there There are some studies there. But at the same time, the basic discrepancy is so huge. And, and, and kids who grow up without that support are just not going to do that well. And instead of inventing uh, the specter of some sort of white supremacists wandering around trying to prevent these people from, people from succeeding, uh, you have this notion uh, that, in fact, any criticism or any, con- and this is completely constructive criticism, that applies to any particular subculture or uh, a cultural criticism must be racist, has to be rejected. There is no problem here. No one can ever factor in any other factor other than white supremacy racism as the answer for any disproportionate difference in outcomes. Yeah, and it's so funny. It cuts against the way that I was raised. This part is more not just being an immigrant, but this kind of Confucian idea, which is always ask, how can we improve? How can you improve? Start with yourself first. How, And the framework you're describing, which is you take any flaw or any problem and say, no, this is, you know, this is actually good. And if you describe it as a problem, then you're being racist. It just leads to no improvement ever. Well, that's you know? the point. And that's why, and that's why they're removing, trying to remove the objective standards, because that proves that it's not going to work. Right. But when they tell people, Tell African American kids that you know that showing up on time and studying hard is a function of white supremacy culture, and this is being taught. I'm sorry, everybody's sort of, now. Nah, no one's saying that. No one's. They keep denying reality that it's right staring. You can see it staring you in the face. You know, the culturally re- culturally yeah. responsive teaching is basically expecting much lower standards from your African American students and from your Latino students than you are from others. And that's that's talking about the soft bigotry of low yes. expectations. That's the hard bigotry of no expectations. <laughs> yeah. Back on the self-selection thing, though, because um, I think you said, it, with, with, at least for the Asian American population, and I, I looked very closely at this in the triple package, it turns out that it's not all self-selection. So there are tons of um, Chinese uh, immigrants and Korean immigrants who come over who are actually illiterate. They're like the they, they own laundries and restaurants, right, right. Um, and that it, the the statistics there are the most interesting. Yes, they also rise, and it is yes. through these SATs. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's that in a way should be viewed as something hopeful because look, it's like look. It's staggeringly hopeful. It's hugely successful. It's showing that America works. It's showing that, and again, this is what I would say about people who regard this country as a white supremacist country, which is, I think, absurd. First of all, I'd say this, that there has been no country in the history of humankind that has the level of cultural and racial and ethnic religious diversity as the United States today, period. Demonstrably. It has never even been attempted anywhere. Yes. Yes, and uh, I even document that with numbers in, in, in the political tribes, yes. And, and you go to any other country, 
you, I mean, go to China and ask attitudes oh about African-Americans. Can you imagine what they say? Can you imagine? They don't even allow non-Han people. Oh, non yeah, you can't even Chinese be a citizen. People. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's just. Nothing. It's blood. It's blood. Or you want to go to France and talk to regular people, you know, about what, how they feel about Muslim immigration. I mean, you, yeah. seriously. The, yeah. the, the, the American liberals have this idea that Europeans are these sophisticated post-racial people embracing. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, I mean, the, the English are pretty tolerant, tolerant people, actually. They have a pretty easy live and let live way of life. They have some issues, but it's not that bad. But America is trying to do something much bigger yeah. than England has ever tried to do. Um, and given, given, given what we know, and this is what I also find hard about the left, when they insist that everybody's racist, and, well, so isn't it more of an achievement that we have this many different races and actually, in fact, an extraordinary record of toleration and success for these entering minorities? I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, how did they create this, this vision of such a bitter white supremacist America? I wonder where the immigrant voices are, because a, a, a lot of the studies that talk about uh, the decline of upward mobility that come out of the Pew Foundation, um, I looked closely at that, and it turns out they do not take into account immigrants or immigrants' children. Can you imagine? I mean, that is such a huge um, proportion of America's dynamism. So all those studies that say we are we are less we have less upward mobility than other countries, uh, and this is not a controversial point. I, the, the Pew people say just longitudinal studies we we couldn't do it, but but this this I think you know if you if you talk to people who come to this country that's how I was raised. Um, why do so many people still want to come here? Um, I, so, they're, they're eager to be oppressed. Uh. <laughs> Um, like I'm an American too, you know, I'm a classic American. I, know, I, I think some of us, some of us, some of us appreciate this place in a way that people who have always taken it for granted don't. And, and I was just like, try living somewhere else and also consider, consider the alternatives. Uh, and, and also the more complicated we are, the more diverse we are in terms of skin color, religion, culture, ethnicity. The, the harder it will be to negotiate compromises over racial quotas, racial groups. It's going to be a permanent internal warfare of a power as, as these intricacies until we become into this crazy sort of vulcanized. Individualism is actually going to be the only way we can have a common and good. I think you might be the only this. way we can have a common constitution. So my students who confide in me, they're saying, you know, even in the, you know, the Latin American Association, that's splintering, you know, because there's colorism and that is people with darker. So, so you're right that it's, it's, it's back to this original point that first of all, it's probably untenable because you could continue to divide to smaller and smaller and smaller groups, you know, are you, um, and secondly, it goes back to my point about why my students seem so much more miserable. They're stressed. They're, you know, uh, it, it's a very, it's the opposite of unifying and humanizing. It, it's like, um, it, I, it does feel like a race to the bottom. Yeah. And it's just practically impossible to do this yeah. without yeah. Permanent, yeah. permanent internal conflict and frustration and anxiety, and therefore increasing amounts of an intolerance because it will create occasions for dividing us infinitely. I think of the, you know, what used to be the gay rights movement. Now it's, I don't know how many yes. letters there are in the alphabet, <laughs> but they're going to have to come up with more. Because once you, I mean, when this, this um, daughter of 
this woman Kennedy Cuomo, one of the the kids of of Kerry Kennedy and um, Andrew Cuomo, uh, said that she was coming out as a a demisexual, and I remember having to come out as a gay person in the eighties, and and uh, and I'm thinking first of all, really, this is not a struggle, and secondly, uh, what is a demisexual? And when she explains that demisexual is being someone who only is attracted to people she has an emotional connection to. I was like, well, you've come out as a woman. You, you understand that? You've come full circle. When you have 54 genders, I mean, what on earth is that supposed to be except a spectacular example of narcissism and, and self-analysis in ways that are utterly unnecessary and terribly confusing? Um, just let it be. Be who you are. You don't need 54 different numbers or labels to identify your gender. Be a man or a woman and then express it however you want to. And violate every expectation, trample every stereotype. But don't, you don't need these bloody words. You're just a human being. And But this attempt to parse it down, to divide each of us into these tiny little sub, 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 subgroups. Eventually, my hope is it gets so tiny it comes back to the individual. Exactly. <laughs> the, the individual. No, it's so suffocating. Uh, that's what I was going to say. The optimism in me is it's untenable. It, it's it's as it gets worse and worse, and more and more people, uh, you know, find themselves actually suffering from it. I think it might just loop back. You I, know, I, it's <laughs> because I, my confidence is that it is so intellectual. What it is it is intellectually coherent, and which is what makes it so dangerous. But it is also politically and socially and psychologically unbearable. And it, it, it's, it cannot sustain itself unless we go absolutely bonkers or unless we really give up democracy altogether. And have maybe it will imposed. go back to the individual. If the, all the group categories get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it, it, it's, you know, it's your, your group is defined by a million different characteristics. Maybe you loop back around to the individual. <laughs> yeah, this is my hope about intersectionality. At some point, most of us in a complicated world can, can add up countless identities that we have. I mean, Jesus, I spent my whole life having to defend myself from these bloody identities. I, how can you be this and that and this yeah. and that and this and that? I'm just me, okay? I'm just we me. We have that in common. And, and, and screw you, and I don't have to even account for these contradictions. They're not. Look at me. I'm here. I exist. These are these things that make me complicated. Now, the, and, but, if, but if you come up with a million different intersectionalities within yourself, yes. you eventually become the individual You're again. the individual again. It's uh, <laughs> but of course, the difference with their intersectionality is they can only understand, and this is what's so tragic about it, they can only understand identity as a form of oppression or oppressing. Yeah, they cannot right. see it as a form of pride. freedom. Yeah. Freedom, expression, pride, joy, culture, uh, all the stuff that makes a comp complicated modern life, and most of us are complicated at this point. We're all third culture kids, at least many, many of us yeah. are. Um, why can't we just be ourselves and drop all these bloody labels? And if you don't believe that the world is entirely, look, it's partly made up of power structure. Again, it's not like you have to dismiss everything. Absolutely. You, Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's clearly there are psychological and cultural and to some extent, some legal and some it's it sort of extant like things like the impact of redlining over the years. So there are things you can see that are valid and should be understood, Absolutely. but you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. And also just wanting to be strong. So I, I was thinking about all my different crazy books from this Tiger Mom book to the triple package to, you know, political tribes. And I think in a way, my whole life and a lot of my work is all very about different ways to turn being an outsider into a source of strength. I think that's how I've 
lived my life and 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 that's kind of the the, the unifying theme and even that is saying something that is kind of right wing you know to want to be strong to want to be proud it's a so i it also back on the freedom like, but it's why should that be right wing amy why should that be right wing i mean i, I don't understand I, I, go, oh it's <laughs> i but that's what i mean by suffocating like i see um people now somebody asked me why did you retreat this person you know because I agreed, I thought it was a good thing, you know, and, but that, does that mean that you're, does that label you in a certain way? And I was like, I refuse to live my life that way. Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's like, yeah, that is the most suffocating thing I can think of. Because all to, they're yeah. thinking about is power, right? They're not thinking about truth. They're thinking, how would my connecting to this person affect my position in this power structure in which, in fact, being super lefty puts you on the top uh, and and not being super lefty puts you on the bottom. They, they, they demotes, don't want to lose. Yeah, and it demotes so many things that are, that are, that are, I, I would think everybody would want to be like courage. What happened to the role of courage? I, I, you'll see the optimists keep popping up in me, Andrew, because I feel like human beings want to value courage and, and they, they, they don't like cowardice. And yet this, the world we live in now is one that basically encourages cowardice. Don't stand up for your rights. Don't retweet somebody even if you agree with them because you might get tarred. Don't stand up for your friends. Denounce people that, you know, even were once good to you. And I just feel like people are going to just, they're not going to be able to stand it anymore. A system that yeah. just won't even valorize courage, or you call it individualism, um, guts, freedom, quirkiness, all those things I think are-, are Eccentricity. Joy, yes. yeah. <laughs> or accepting that not everything in life is political. That, yes. that, that the whole point of a liberal democracy is that it has a political sphere in which we adopt certain positions and roles, namely as a citizen without these identities. And then it also allows us to have a, a private life, a life yes. of the arts, a life of culture, of music, of, of play, of sex, of family that have nothing political in them. And, and this is another struggle because they want to turn every part of life into their totalitarian, it is a totalitarian mindset, to make everything about power. You can't, you can't go to a concert anymore without counting the number of people of one race in the orchestra yeah. and, and, and not of the other, as if that is what the point of this thing is. You, 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 you now go to a museum and you find that you can't just observe the beauty of a painting. You have to know that it's, right. it's a function of the time, of the impression oh of this gosh. group and that group, and the, the sheer... Uh, it, is, it is as if as if the world is just about power and has no freedom in it at all. Yes, and how about just comedy and literature and, oh, and yeah. you know, I, I've been uh, using this term a lot because I'm a very unfiltered person. I've always been kind of proud of that. It's just me. It, it, it leads me to trouble sometimes, but that's who I am. Um, but, you know, I've had to be apologizing for such a being such an unfiltered person. And, uh, but I, I think you're preaching to the choir. I know I'm preaching to the choir. What depresses me, though, is I, I read something like the New York Times, which I used to really respect as a paper, and every single category of life, every arts, every, every culture section, every, even yeah. every sports section, everything is about this stuff. And it's deliberate, and it's being imposed yeah. by, these, by these crazies that have taken control of these institutions and using fear and bullying and marginalization and social stigmatization, all the classic sort of Stasi techniques to, yeah. to intimidate human beings out of their own 
their own individuality. And that's, that's, I'm, I'm, you've, you've like, you've cheered me up. I mean, I need, I, I just, <laughs> I need to be around more people who can, I mean, I do have friends like this, but to live publicly right now is to be assailed at all from oh all corners by this stuff. And, it and, is. and we have to, and it's courage is a great word. Courage is a great word. Let's, yeah. It's amazing also what individual courage can do, how it spreads. You can stand up and, and, and try and fight this shit because it, 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 it's going to crush everybody in the end. I've been doing it. That's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's also enormously time consuming and, and debilitating because you, you lose friends, people flee. It's, it's, it's shocking. But, um, but I, you, know, I you have strength, yeah. Amy. You have extraordinary reservoirs of strength. I can see it, Thank even though you. you look as if it hasn't aged you an inch. You look just as stunning as you might have. We're, no, the same, the... We're, we're basically the same age. Um, and I just want to finish by saying I'm I, the fact that you are still teaching and kicking ass and have this kind of perspective. I was talking recently to the wonderful Carol Hooven at Harvard who teaches about biology and about yes. genetics and about yes. testosterone. Another, another fascinating yes. topic that we're somehow has been completely flattened by this idiotic discourse. Um, and so thank God you're still there. Believe me, people are grateful for the for people like you who are not intimidated by these motherfuckers. And if you pardon my language and, and bring joy and verve to it all. It's like, that's the thing, verve, energy, nerve. That's what we need. Not as much nerve as we need courage. Thank and, you. You've uh, made my day and re-inspired me because it does feel like co a constant beating sometimes. I know you've lived through this. Uh, you know, yeah. for the, the strongest person can, and it just, it gets at you. <laughs> it does. It works because yeah. you're a oh, human. And yeah. either you drop your humanity and you don't feel anything when someone calls you a white oh, supremacist, even though it violates every core of your being and the glibness and ease with which they call you such a thing. It's really quite staggering. Um and and we need to encourage each other because because that's that that will help us help us get through this period. I and I I I I'm a big believer that reality wins in the end, yes. but I'm also a big believer that ideology can inflict damage on people very very badly before it falls, oh, yes. and it will fall. This 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 ideology is false. It will fail. It's untrue, but it can destroy lives. It can ruin lives. It will it will prevent people from achieving so much. It will deter people from trying when they might otherwise have tried. It will discourage those who might give it a go. They will, it will, it will render people's own understanding of their own lives as much less colorful, deep, and interesting than it otherwise would be. And I, I just beg the younger generation to like open your eyes. This is this is one way of looking at the world. By all means, look at it. But look at liberalism, look at the tradition that we have, look at the look at the extraordinary minds and souls, black and white and Asian and any number of, uh, of identities that have that have managed to create this amazing society that we we're throwing away in a, in a fit of whiny peak. Anyway, I'm getting I'm getting over I'm getting over excited here. I'm getting excitable, Amy. I'll, I'll shut up now. Sorry, I should have listened more to you. Oh not no, it's been such a pleasure. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Uh, you've given me hope, also. Yeah. <laughs> so hang in there. Um, Thanks I'm so huge, much. Yeah. Huge admirer. Don't let these motherfucker envious. They're envious, first of all. They don't like any academic that 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 succeeds outside the academy because they're mediocrities and and they also don't like talent because they're not as talented as you and you just don't have to be exposed to what you do and i wish i were one of your students i i, I right now i would definitely yes, sign it's up fun. Um, it's fun. 
<laughs> and I'd be part Thank of your little so posse much. of gay white men who were like devoted to you because uh, right. uh, uh, we were, I just want the white gay white men to wake up and say, no, we don't have to support this alphabet movement with all its insanity. We don't. We don't have to insist on putting drugs into young, possibly gay kids uh, before they know who they're they are. They're quietly so, there. Quietly there. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Lots of love. Thank you. It was so much and fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much. And we'll, 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 we'll see you guys out there next week. Um, thanks to Amy. Um, you have Peter Beinart coming up, which could be kind of fun. Um, and all sorts of others in the future. Um, so we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. Bye.